uh, it, it's been really just such an honor from so many different levels. And at the end of the day, what it's really about is is removing these barriers to opportunity for people and trying to help people who have made mistakes, you know, get a second chance and then trying to fix the system so we don't have so many people in prison who really don't need to be there, who are a threat to public safety, and those who are a threat, making it so they can get better so they can come out. That is Mark Holden. He's here today to talk to us about criminal justice reform. I'm Dwayne Lester. This is Top Priority, where we talk about ideas for human flourishing. and welcome to Top Priority, a production of the Americans for Prosperity Foundation's Grassroots Leadership Academy. I'm Dwayne Lester. Today we're talking with Mark Holden about criminal justice reform. But before we get to that, I want to read you a recent five-star review we got for our podcast. White Noise 88 writes, check this out if you're curious about what the Stand Together community is working on or attended a Grassroots Leadership Academy training. Each episode, they do a deep dive into a specific initiative and help break down the issue with key leaders from the organization. And this episode is no different, folks. It, it is it is difficult to get more key in leadership than Mark Holden and what he's done in criminal justice reform. So I want to encourage you before we go any further, if you haven't left us a review, please go and do that now. Pause the podcast. It'll be here when you get back. Go and make the review. Leave a five-star review, please. And then come back and listen to this great interview with Mark Holden. Now, I want to warn you before we get into it, this is the era of COVID. And of course, this had to be done remotely using my rubber band internet that I have at my house. Some of the audio isn't as clean or as clear as the rest of it, but please stick in there, stick with it, and I think you'll come out the other end. Happy you did. So what are you doing these days? I used to see on, on the Facebook machine that you were all over, traveling all over the place. Um, but what's a day in your life now like? I mean, a lot of people call this, you know, after COVID. I, I prefer to call it the, the you know, life. There's life before Patrick Mahomes and now life after. So what are you doing in the Who's new... Pa- I never heard of Patrick Mahomes. <laughs> Tell me more about him. <laughs> oh, you know, I, I asked some folks, I asked some folks, give me some questions I should ask Mark Holden. And Mike Sissio's first response is, ask him why the Patriots are the best. And I thought, I only have an hour with... Are uh, the best, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, but yeah, what are you... Yeah, what, I don't know if they're the best anymore. They had a good, they had a good run. So, yeah, I mean, it's, well, it's been different for everybody, I'm sure. Um, these days since COVID hit, I'm, I live in DC now, moved from Kansas to DC a few years ago. And then, so that, what I'm doing now is, um, and I also retired from Coke, uh, at the end of last year, um, now a consultant to Coke industries and to our, um, stand together in our network. So I still stay engaged on criminal justice for issues and other issues. And, you know, right now. Uh, I had to head to this year 
because, you know, we got the first step back done in 2018 and we had all these plans working with, you know, our, our coalitions left and right. Um, and we were, we, we had, you know, a lot of forward motion. Um, and what happened was after, uh, uh, basically when COVID hit, everything kind of shut down. And since that time, it's been really rough. Um, we've been able to get some reforms done, but it's just harder to do it because people aren't around or don't want to fly or, you know, there's, there's breakouts of, 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 uh, the COVID virus, you know, people have lost family members. I lost a family member this year to it, my mother, which was, um, tough. Uh, but you know, we're still working away on the issues we care about. We're working at the federal level and the state levels, trying to get things done in places like Mississippi, uh, Pennsylvania, we're working hard with our Americans for Prosperity and uh, working at the federal level on policing reform, uh, which we thought would be have a lot of momentum for it. Uh, you know, the, 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 the First Step Act, as you know, was something that was came together at the last minute, and it was it, it shouldn't have taken that long, but it did. Um, and in the First Step Act. Mitch McConnell at first was kind of not that interested in doing it, tried to basically, um, you know, just kind of slow everything down, so to speak, because he didn't think there was enough time. Well, ultimately, we were able to convince him, and he was on board and he voted for it. Well, McConnell's been a big proponent of the police reform bill that uh, Senator Scott has, and yet it hasn't gone anywhere. So it's a little frustrating. Um, I think people are now waiting until the end of the year, after the elections, to see how it all shakes out. But you know, from our perspective, what we're trying to do is wherever we can make a difference, and we've got, you know, comparative advantage in different places, uh, whichever states we're in, how we can best uh, mobilize our groups or individuals, we're going to keep trying to work on these issues that we care about. And uh, there's a lot out there. You know, First Step Act was great, but there's probably 10,000 things we have to do <laughs> besides that now, uh, way beyond even criminal justice issues, as you know. Well, you said you've said twice now that we need to keep moving forward on on issues that we care about. And that brings up a great question that uh, I've always had. Why is why is this an issue that you care about? I mean, can you tell me your story about how how you got involved in this? Sure. I mean, we'll go way back when Um, back where I'm from in Worcester, Massachusetts, um, when um, I was 17 years old. I got arrested um, and got in some, not major trouble, but enough trouble that for someone like me, you know, working class family background, we didn't have any resources really. Um, we had a, as, as I go on, I'll tell you more about this, but we had across the street from us lived uh, the sheriff of Worcester County. And, you know, for all the, basically what I did wasn't major, but it would have been enough if I didn't know someone um, that, um, I would have ended up in the system. And that probably would have been a big game changer for me in a negative way uh, because my family didn't have resources. We could probably afford a lawyer and all that stuff. And then once you have a, a record back then, it was basically you're done. And, but instead of that happening, instead of going to either get uh, you know, probation or go serve some time, I ended up getting a job at the Worcester County House of Correction because I lived across the street from the sheriff. And uh, it was probably one of the best things that ever happened to me at the time. 
And I, when I work in the prison, um, there are a lot of people I grew up with playing sports against and people I went to high school with, junior high with, who were incarcerated and basically their lives were over. And I worked there for about uh, two, three years and um, they just got worse and worse. And so that always stuck with me um, from a, you know, from being a, a knucklehead uh, in, in high school all the way through college, et cetera. And it just so happened, and I, I was lucky enough again to not have to go through the system. And then I went to college at UMass, and then I went to law school in Washington, D.C. at Catholic University. And um, after working in a big law firm for a few years doing litigation, uh, I took a job with Coke Industries. And that was really what, um, where it all kind of came together from a criminal justice perspective, working at Coke particularly with Charles Cope and his now late brother David, who were very much um, pioneers in some level on criminal justice reform. Charles was against the mandatory minimums and the war on drugs from the beginning. He and David gave money early on to families against mandatory minimums. They worked with the Reason Foundation and um, were very much focused on that and um, was one of these issues that, um, it, it was for them a, a, an issue that they cared about a lot. But then we had a case in our company back in, it started in the late 90s, and uh, it was right after I started at Coke in 1995. And four, ultimately, four of our employees were indicted for alleged environmental crimes by the federal government down in Corpus Christi, Texas. And uh, it was really crazy because our, one of the uh, individuals, excuse me, the individuals who were invited actually cleaned up a mess that was created by another employee who put in a false statement to the government. And what happened was our employees found it, uh, found out about it. They ended up firing the individual who did it, and they reported it to the state regulator in Texas. And the state regulator said, okay, well, thanks. And um, with our, in, in our initial meeting with them, in the record of that meeting from the government side, it says that the, our employees said that they were out of compliance and would get back to the regulator when they were in compliance. And all that happened within a few months. Yet what happened after that, there were some whistleblowers who came out of the woodwork. This was at a time when oil prices were really low and, and it was a, a, a tough go for um, the oil company and for Coke Industries as well. And so what happened was we had people who were getting laid off who started to raise these questions and said they were whistleblowers. They started talking to uh, state regulators, and they talked to the And next thing you know, we had a 97-count right against us down in Corpus Christi that came out about 2000, um, right around the time when, not to be political here, George W. Bush was the uh, for the Republican uh, position. And the evidence was overwhelming that our guys did the right thing. It wasn't perfect, but they did everything they were supposed to do. And when we were able to have what they call a Daubert hearing, where the government's expert had to come up and say what the basis for their claims were, their case all fell apart because they re the, the information they had was from one of the whistleblowers who didn't know what she was when she sampled the... the um, um, when she was sampling out in the um, in the uh, refinery, and so what happened was all of her 
her findings were that we were way over our um, limits. But the reality was because she didn't know what she was doing, uh, when we looked at it, we were, it was under that, um, and we could show that. And that was the first time we were in front of a federal judge to hear about these issues. And the judge at that point said after the hearing that, you know, that this, this case it needs to go away. The four individuals, she said, were, um, you know, that they, they, they had done nothing wrong. And ultimately, our four employees who went through hell, uh, they ended up having to sign a release of their right to sue the government for malicious prosecution as part of the government's taking all the um, all, all the all the um, claims off the table, so to speak, and and freeing them because they did absolutely nothing wrong. And what happened was our company then paid um, a uh, a fine for the false statement, which our found about six years earlier and uh, turned into the government. And, you know, we, we, at that point, we said, fine, we'll pay whatever it is to get moving on, and we did. Um, one of the other ironies was we found out during the um, process that the government or someone had doctored evidence. It, it was that uh, document I talked about where just a little bit ago when our employees said that they went in and they told the, the uh, government that uh, they – uh, the, the regulators in Texas, what they were going to do and how they were going to do it, and then they did it. Well, someone doctored that document to remove the information that said that they were they were out of compliance. So they tried to make it seem like we were trying to, you know, a bait and switch here. And um, we never had to use that document, even though it, it would have helped us in the trial because the whole case fell apart. And so after that, um, what we had to do was look at our internal processes to make sure we were doing the right thing. And a lot of it was just reaching out to the uh, regulators more often, not, not just showing up whenever you have an issue. Uh, we also needed to make sure that you know, we were all doing the right thing around compliance. And our compliance was good, but the problem was we had people involved in the compliance investigation who were also part of the original what happened. And that kind of makes it a little bit of a mixed message. And then the last thing, though, when we talked to Charles, uh, Charles Choke, our CEO, he said that, well, what about the system? Did you think the, the criminal justice system worked the way it should? We were like, absolutely not. And he said, well, if that's happening to us and we've got all these resources and we can you know, stand up against the government, what's happening to you know, people on the street, uh, small business owners, you name it, um, what's happening to them? And we said, well, it's not good. And he said, well, let's try to fix it. And that's how it started. And that was about 2002. I'm, I'm so glad that you shared that story because there are some folks out there who who are more interested in in really investigating or, or ascribing motive to people rather than looking at actions and so one of the things that that i've heard is that the only reason that that we're even involved in in criminal justice reform dates back to corpus crispy christi but not because there were there were obvious problems but because all we want to do is take it back to a pre-regulatory area, and you know nobody cares about anybody else. It's all about it's all about just getting the government out of big business's way. And what you've described there is actually somebody saying, "Look, if it's happening to us, it's happening to everybody else, and they don't have the resources we do." And we see that every day. Right. Every day we see that. One thing that Charles, I've heard him say, yeah, is no, it's, uh, it's, it's better to be rich and guilty than poor and innocent. Yeah, it's, uh, that's something that um, uh, Brian Stevenson, 
uh, wrote Just, uh, Just Mercy. It's a movie that came out. It's a great book um, as well about the death penalty down in uh, Alabama. And that is his tagline that it's in this country. It's better to be rich and guilty than it is to be poor and innocent. And I kind of like my story is a little bit like that. We didn't have money, but I had connections. So really, it's, it's a two tiered system, two tiered criminal justice system. We have two tiered systems throughout, you know, all of our uh, governments and, and, and different programs. Um, and really what it is, is if you if you do have resources, you're going to get a much better outcome than people who don't have resources. And if you don't have resources, you're most likely going to get run over in this system. It's a brutal system. It's not one that really, at the end of the day, does what it's supposed to do. And in my opinion, um, with no disrespect to any, there are a lot of hard people, hardworking people who work in prisons and try to help people and all that. It just isn't working in criminal justice system, in my opinion, is exhibit one. When you look at, at back at your career since starting, I mean, it's 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 an incredible career when you think you started as a basically a prison guard and you find yourself on stage now with Snoop Dogg. What, what, are, <laughs> what are some of the things when you look back on that you consider to be your biggest accomplishments? Well, I don't, I mean, any accomplishment that I've had is because of the team and because of being able to work at Coke Industries and uh, being able to learn from people like Charles Coke and Dave Robertson and many other people. Um, and so for me, it's just that's one of the great things about even in our network as well, the people I work with that stand together, including you and others. Um, what, what's important is, you know, how do we how do we get things done? And how we get things done is basically what Charles always talks about is, to, you know, we, we have to have shared values, uh, shared vision, and we need complementary capabilities. And so for me, if you want to talk about the criminal justice work we did, I mean, it, I, I was, it tells you how easy it must be to be part of criminal justice because I was seen as a face of the criminal justice reform, which is pretty scary if you've seen my face. Uh, but the reality is we had such a great team. I mean, and it's still there, both that stand together. And at, um, at, at, at Coke, I mean, like Jenny Kim, um, some former colleagues like Jeff Holtzman. Um, we, we go on and on. I don't want to go on and on, but we've also had people like Sarah Field and Brianna Walden who work at Standing Together. And then our foundation does great work on these issues. And it kind of all came together with criminal justice issues like it does with our other issues. You know, so going back to for me, yeah, it was a little surreal for you know, I've, to, you know, I've, I've been able to work with uh, the, the, the chief, basically, um, advisors for both the Obama administration that's, um, and then also for the Trump administration. So Valerie Garrett and, and uh, um, Jared Kushner, who are good friends of mine, both of them. And it's, it's one of these things where I, criminal justice is that area where left and right have been able to come together and it's been great and we'd like to see more of that. But for me, just being, you know, part of this and uh, it's been really just such an honor from so many different levels. And at the end of the day, what it's really about is, is removing these barriers to opportunity for people and trying to help people who have made mistakes, you know, get a second chance and then trying to fix the system. So we don't have so many people in prison who really don't need to be there who are a threat to public safety and those who are a threat making it so they can get better so they can come out. 
and have a productive life. I mean, that, that's what this is all about. It's about really making our community safer. And if it's going to be about beyond just public safety, it also because I mean, you could lock up everybody and say you're safe. That isn't the case. But I mean, we're very focused just on on public safety, but also it's got to be equal rights and equal justice. And we need to have a system that treats everybody with uh, dignity and respect. And I mean everybody from the accused to the, um, to the um, uh, convicted, uh, crime survivors, families, law enforcement, you name it. Everybody needs to be treated with dignity and respect. And then the last piece is we really need a system that's built on redemption and and restoration and rehabilitation instead of just warehousing and making people worse in prisons. And that's kind of what we've been focused on and we've been really successful. And I'm, again, you know, from my perspective, being able to work at Coke Industries is the reason I was able to do this. I was kind of going, you know, my, I played my role and it's, it's similar to what, you know, you, you mentioned the Patriots earlier. It's what Bill Belichick always talks about, do your job. I had my job to do. I had a lot of different jobs at Coke. This was one of them. And so you just do the best you can to move on. And now we're continuing to move on you know, on these issues because there's so much more that needs to be fixed, especially around policing reform and other issues. Frederick Douglass said that I would unite with anyone to do good and no one to do wrong. And you're talking about working with Van Jones and with Valerie Jarrett. And that that would be problematic for some folks to work with ACLU, you name it yeah yeah some people hear those names and and they they recoil from that but it takes me back to something that i actually i cannot believe that i continue to quote ralph nader but but i do because it's such a great point he's on stage with grover norquist and they're both on stage together and they're decrying the the evils of cronyism and they they are both mm-hmm. ideologically different, but Ralph Ralph looks at the at the room, and this is at Lindenwood uh, University in Saint, outside St. Louis, and he said nothing scares a politician. Actually, he said terrified. Nothing terrifies a politician more than the left and the right united against them. And I I see this in this issue right now. Mm-hmm. What do you say to folks who struggle with the idea of working with folks that they don't agree with? 80% of the time, 90% of the time. I'd say first that if you ever want to get anything done, it's, it'd be much easier if you try to work with people, even if, if you don't agree with them on everything. And I guess I'd also say, I don't know anybody who agrees with everyone on everything. I mean, hell, I change my mind all the time. And it's just, it's become so partisan. You know, I'd like to, I'm not naive, but I'd like to think that when we're coming over to these issues where we can find a way to work together, we should work together. I mean, we're, we're all Americans, right? I mean, we're, we're all part of the same country. And this us and them stuff, this, you know, uh, it's one thing to be a really, you know, um, partisan New England Patriots fan or Boston Red Sox fan or Yankees or the Chiefs. That's one thing. It's, it's sports, so, you know, it matters, but it doesn't. But we're talking about people's lives, and, you know, I, I guess to the extent that there's something good can happen, I mean, just get it done and move on. I mean, that's the story of the criminal justice issues for sure. I mean, you know, the First Step Act, um, you know, after that, that, that came about after uh, the Obama administration. It should have happened under Obama, in my opinion. It was the same bill by and large, but 
it was too late in the process by the time they started really working on that and and you had a presidential election coming up and you know what it was was all all along senator mike lee who i think a whole lot of um and senator cory booker who i think a whole lot of i've worked with both of them a lot but uh, they were both saying the same thing, basically. There's 70 votes, at least, in the Senate for these bills, for, for the criminal justice bill. But it just took the you know, time to get it done and in the right place, et cetera. But I, this, this whole thing with, you know, partisanship and, you know, that's my guy, that's your gal, whatever it is, I mean, it, it, it doesn't make sense to me. I understand that there are some issues that both sides feel really strongly about, um, and can't agree on, but there's a lot where they could, and it's just, it's, it's too bad, and it's really, you know, it's, it's been that way for a while now, but it's getting, it's getting worse and worse. I mean, the whole thing with the war on drugs, I mean, that was something that back when Nixon decided to push it uh, with, a, you know, the, <clears throat> the whole tough on crime and law and order thing, they didn't do it because they were worried about public safety. They did it to win elections, and that's not just me saying it. John Ehrlichman, one of the Watergate burglars who worked for Nixon said that. It said it was never about the drugs because if you were going to do it based on what you know, drugs and other issues, there was a way to do it, which was, you know, keep people who are, um, you know, people who have a substance abuse issue or a mental health issue, keep them out of the system, get them treatment. And then there, if there are people who are dangerous who are selling drugs, then you go after them. But they didn't do that. And what they decided to do was do the war on drugs, and they did it to, and this is again John Ehrlichman's um, comments, not mine. He said that it was basically so they could, um, you know, basically go after African Americans and have them incarcerated, and then they wouldn't be able to vote. It was to destabilize those communities. And it was to go after the left, leftist elite, as they called it, as well. So it had nothing to do with public safety, and it made things worse, and it had everything to do with winning elections and both sides have done it since then you, know, you can go from there to reagan you go from reagan to hw bush and you go to the clinton bill the clinton crime bill which really was not it was some couple of good things in it but mostly really bad and everybody knew better all the time but they didn't change it so from my perspective we've done so many things that were completely the opposite of what we should have done back in the 70s 80s and 90s now we need to fix all of this and we can do it and we've got a coalition that can build on it and i bet it could go beyond criminal justice if we gave it a chance what were those initial meetings with van jones like um you know at first van and i weren't buddies let's just put it that way he uh i mean he's told the story that he felt that afp americans for prosperity was the reason why he was fired from the obama administration from the job now I don't know if that's the case or not. I know that there were some folks in in, in, uh, in AFP back in the day who were no longer with us who had made some comments about it. But for whatever reason, Van was not a fan of ours, and I don't. I wouldn't say we were a fan of his either. My first dealings with him were around, um, I think it was 2010, and Van. We were having one of our summits out in uh, California, and uh, Van was there with a bunch of um, groups who were from the left who weren't pleased that we were in California and weren't pleased that we had um, been part of a coalition that I guess people gave us credit for uh, changing the um, uh, House of Representatives, flipping it back in 2010. And so Van was protesting out in front of our facility and they did a, like a, a uh, they had some, uh, 
town hall meeting where Van and some other folks were up there calling us. A lot of things that I won't get into. Um, but what happened was, so that was 2010, 2011. We, uh, after that, you know, it, it took a little bit, but we started showing up at the same events up on the hill on criminal justice. And so uh, what really happened was once the Senate flipped in 2014, it, um, and it went from Democrat to Republican-led, to the uh, and McConnell was the leader, um, what happened was I, I got um, an entree from the White House, and then also we, we started working with Van. We were at these events and started to get to know each other, and we realized that there was a lot of things that we didn't understand about each other or know about each other, and there's some things we disagreed on, but we also focused on what we could get done. And it's been, he's, I consider him one of my best friends now. And um, we don't agree on everything. We still disagree on some things, but it's been great working with him. But from the beginning, if you told me back in 2010 that this would be someone I'd consider one of my good friends, and we'd be working together and getting things done in a bipartisan way, I would have said that, that, that could never happen. But it did. That's a fantastic story and shows that, you know, what Nader said is really true. You could you might be able to get things done. But when you work with those who are aligned on on a mission and you you drive that cultural or that ideological spectrum, you are actually able you're building a stronger base from which to to make those changes. And it's 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 got to happen. You're right about the tribalism. Also, the, the people just cornering themselves off and, and not allowing themselves to work with somebody who they don't agree with 95% of the time. I remember I had an activist who who's like, I don't like working with people I don't agree with 95% of the time. And I said, uh, well, I remember being single. Sure. Um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, it's going to be alone a lot then. <laughs> yeah. Um, we, we talk about uh, the criminal justice reforms that are needed. Is There, there are five different spectrums. And as I've talked with everybody in the Stand Together community and, and Americans for Prosperity Foundation's policy team, and I look at look at everything from overcriminalization all the way to prison reentry, I see so much of the problem starting with overcriminalization. And I I posted something the other day on Facebook that that you liked, um, and the whole idea is is that all of these laws. Are, are backed by the threat of violence. And the law is supposed to be there to secure and defend a person's rights. And so we need to be very careful about we put what we put into law. How, how serious is the overcriminalization situation in the United States today? And, and why do you think it's so overlooked in favor of things like prison and reentry reforms? Well, because I guess um, it's a good question why it's overlooked. It isn't really overlooked, but when we try to bring it up, some of the folks that we work with, um, it's seen as something not as important because other people think, look, these people are getting out right now. We need to get them out, blah, 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 get them back and get them rehabilitated. So I think it's just different. You know, People have different um, areas of expertise or interest, but the, you know, if you... Um, the way we looked at the whole issue with criminal justice reform when we started working on it back so many years ago, we started with, okay, what are the laws? Well, how many laws do we have in this country? And, and what, are they, what are they focused on? And that was very eye-opening. I think there's, 
is an estimate that there's at the federal level alone, there's four to 5,000 federal crimes. I mean, think about that. I mean, that's a lot. Mm -hmm. I, I don't think I could name more than a hundred or so. And then there, beyond that is there's an estimated, I think it's 400,000 and maybe more or 300,000 federal um, regulations that have criminal aspects to it. So it's this whole, there are a couple of books out about it. It's a, one is a three, uh, three felonies a day. And there's another one by Mike Chase, who uh, is a defense lawyer. I think it's, it's called how to become a federal uh, felon. Uh, because of the number of laws and they just kind of, one of these things that people, it's, you know, the whole tough on crime, it's, it's a, it's a estimate of the tough on crime era and it's also the war on drugs. And it's also part of the fact that, you know, we, we, because of the war on drugs, we went so way overboard. We changed the whole, you know, basically the balance of power in the courtroom. I mean, the most powerful person in the courtroom now is prosecutor. 98% or so, 97% of the show of the cases are, are determined by plea bargains. And, you know, judges oversee those somewhat, but they don't get involved in it. And prosecutors have so much power, and that's because of all these laws that have been put up and made by people who are largely prosecutors or largely people who are, you know, don't want to be seen as soft on crime, so they end up going for all these different laws that are in place that are, are acting more laws giving more power over to prosecutors as opposed to having it, um, you know, in the hands of a judge and a jury, which is the way the system's supposed to work. And, you know, so one of the things we're working on is um, a couple of things. First, um, you, you, we want to make sure that you know, we have laws in place to protect public safety, but at the same time, you've got that many laws, it's like, it's just, it's chaos. And so we should really try to, slim down the number of laws in the federal system and the state system. And Congress has asked the, uh, has asked um, DOJ to tab how many federal criminal laws there are a couple of times, as I understand it. But basically they were told that uh, we can't do it. It's too hard. It's too many. And so that's kind of one of those things. It's, you know, that was an acceptable answer. It's too hard. We can't do it in Washington, D.C., but if, you know, your fifth grader said that in his, his or her math homework, it put them in their room. So having all these different laws just makes it really, in a lot of ways, it's not, I'm not comparing our system to Stalin, but Stalin's chief of police always said, show me the, show me the person, I'll, I'll find you the crime. And that's what happens here. It gives them ultimate, you know, basically do what they want, king for a day, queen for a day. That's why they call it that when they're doing these uh, plea bargains. And one of the other things is just basically, you know, we've got a system now uh, many times without um, intense standards. And that was one of the curious things for me when we started working on these issues and we're working well with uh, the left and the right, but then they started to get upset because we were talking about having intense standards for people who need a dollar to need an intent. That's a, as everybody knows, it's a bedrock of any just system. And they started saying, well, you just want to do that so you can pollute. And I was like, what are you talking about? I mean, we don't pollution. You can get, it's already a law against that, and it has an intent standard. <laughs> so that became this big issue. And at the end of the day, they were saying, well, you're just trying to get 
white-collar criminals off. And it's like, no, we don't want anybody who breaks the law to get off on anything. We want a just system. And, you know, so we went around and around on it. And the reality is, you know who gets hurt the most by laws, these conspiracy laws in particular? It's poor people. It's African-Americans, poor people, poor white people, people usually in drug conspiracies. Someone like my good friend Alice Marie Johnson, who was a low-level uh, offender, but because, the, because in a drug conspiracy or any conspiracy, everybody is culpable uh, with everybody else. You own all of it. And the prosecutors got upset. She turned down the three to five year plea bargain. And instead they made her the key person in the conspiracy. And she got life plus 25 years. So I don't understand how that works, but that's one of the problems as well. We have too many laws and we have way too many uh, when we don't have enough intent standards. One thing that is good, there are a couple of groups that I work with that are now looking to really look at what's in the federal code, get conspiracy, get um, conspiracy worked out so it has to be based on the individual's actual actions and not the fact that they were just in a meeting. And so there's a long way to go, but the reality is you have all these different laws out there. It just puts everybody at risk. I mean, Bobby Unser, the, uh, the race car driver, Indy champion, he's got a criminal record. And his criminal record was he was... He was uh, uh, snowmobiling up in Utah or somewhere, got caught in a blizzard, um, and they almost, you know, <laughs> wandering around. They didn't know where they were. They finally found their um, snowmobiles, and they were rescued by federal um, authorities. And at the time, they, they ended up giving him, they, they was a, um, a um, well, I'm trying to think what the, I forget the exact law, but it was basically a felony they were charging him with, and then they went to a misdemeanor because his his um, snowmobile was on federal land and he didn't have a permit. But he was caught in a blizzard; he had no idea. <laughs> My goodness, and that's how out of control it is. I mean, that's kind of silly, but at the same time, he has a criminal record. That's crazy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You posted something again. I'm going back to, to Facebook because it seems that's, that's where I'm living my lives a lot these days. But you posted something uh, earlier <laughs> in July. It was a study by the CrimeReport.org. Study finds persistent racial bias in police stops and searches. And your only comment when you posted it was systemic. That is a word that creates a lot of consternation with folks who tend to be uh, right of center. Now, what I like to talk about, and, and well, they we, don't know what systemic means. Then. That's that's going to be that's my question. Then, when you write that, what is it you mean by that? Because a lot of people hear that and they think Mark's saying that everybody, every cop is racist, and I'm sure that's not what you're saying. No, and that isn't what systemic means. Systemic racism means there's a system in place that none of us may have had any part in, other than the fact that we're alive. <laughs> I'm not saying that they're doing it intentionally, but it has that outcome. And so that's all that means. And it's not surprising that there'd be systemic issues in our system since a lot of it came out of no disrespect to the South, but the Jim Crow laws. I mean, so I'm not saying anybody's necessarily racist. I'm saying that there are systems in place that work against particularly people who are black and brown. They're all represented in prisons and arrests and in getting shot and, you know, and, and by and large poor people as well. So that's a systemic thing. I'm not calling people racist. I'm saying this is a system that is, has been put in, you know, whatever was good or bad at the beginning, it was put into place 
And now it seems to be out of control and who it, who's, you know, damaging the most. And so we should try to fix it. That's all that is. And if people say they haven't done anything, I'm not saying they are. I'm just saying it's a systemic issue. Mm-hmm. There's a great uh, post, or not post, it's, it's in the Washington Post, but it's an article by Radley Balco. It was posted way back in 2018. Yeah, it's great. And right on. The, the, the definition that, I, that he writes that I embrace is systemic racism means that we have systems and institutions that produce racially disparate outcomes regardless yep. of the intentions of the people who work within them. That sounds exactly what you right. just said. That's what I was just trying to say. It's the same thing. Yep. Exactly. That's what it is. I'm not saying anybody is. People get upset about it, and they say, well, I didn't ever do that. I said, well, neither did I. But do you think those systems make sense, and do we think fair? <laughs> so that should be the, that should be what we're focused on, not that someone feels like they're being called out. But at the same time, you know, I don't, I've tried to explain that to people, and I guess people don't want to hear it or don't understand it. Have you read Balco's book, Rise of the Warrior Cop? No, I've read him. I mean, I read him a lot in the Washington Post. He had a, you said the one 2018. He had another one more recently, back in June, about systemic issues. Again, trying to explain it because people just get really amped up about it. What I'm curious is what you're looking looking at next. I mean, what's what's in the next five, ten years for you? And personally, or in the criminal justice system? In the criminal justice system. Or personally, really, from my from my per perspective, it gets back to just starting at the beginning of the system, like we were just talking about with the number of laws, of intent standards, trying to get that fixed up. And and, and there's like I said, groups I work with that are looking at those issues, and and, and it was one of the precursors to the First Step Act. It came out uh, with something Mike Lee was uh, working on was just basically putting together a committee to look at all the different laws and then get rid of them and to make sure they had criminal justice standards in there. That, that's important. I think we need to look at asset forfeiture issues still. Um, I know that Clarence Thomas has been noticeably interested in it and others. And, I mean, again, I'm not anti-police. I have law enforcement in my family. I was a prison guard. Most of my best friends back in Worcester, Mass., work either in prisons or in a, at, at the Worcester, County, uh, Worcester Police or state troopers. So I'm not against police, but I think that, you know, when, when law enforcement takes your stuff without an arrest, without a warrant, <laughs> any probable cause necessarily, there's a problem with that under the, you know, the Constitution, the Bill of Rights. I mean, I'm still a big believer in the Bill of Rights. And, you know, Fourth, Fifth, Sixth, Eighth Amendments and the Seventh Amendment with the uh, right to jury trial in some of these cases, um, it was clear that our founders were worried about uh, the government doing things inappropriately, and they were sending us a message that the biggest threat to public safety is going to come through the criminal justice system. And they were right, and it does. So I think we need to look at that. We need to look at fines and fees. We need to look at the way we do probation, where people get these ticky-tack claims because they miss a meeting or their car breaks down. Um, there's a lot of things like that that need to be fixed. And it needs to be fixed to make everything safe. We want a safer system. Um, so th- that's important. It's, we need to look at our uh, the mandatory minimums. I I would get rid of all of them except for the ones for the truly violent, the people who are truly the the, uh, the leaders of these different cartels or whatever. Right? Not the people like Alice Johnson or Chris Young or others who are low level offenders but have 
uh, because of the way the, the laws work, they can be held as culpable as you know, El Chapo, quite frankly. So we need to look at sentencing reform still, a lot more there. Uh, we need to make sure that we're following Sixth Amendment, the Sixth Amendment right to counsel. You know, and that, that's a big deal. Um, you know, that, that is the only occupation that you see in the bill that you may have a lawyer and a defense lawyer. And so, so we don't do that all the time. And it's a huge disparity between prosecutors and the resources they have and public defenders and court-appointed lawyers. And I think that they should both have the same parity. So if the prosecutor's office has 20 people and public defenders need 20 people or whatever, and they need the same amount of resources to do the investigations, uh, we need to make sure that judges are in changes. So like I said earlier, judges aren't being, you know, basically just um, rubber things that prosecutors are doing in plea bargains. That needs to change. We need to make sure that um, people who are incarcerated, that they are treated humanely. We need to make sure that victims are, and, and crime survivors are treated appropriately. Oftentimes they aren't even. After the case is over, everybody gets about them. Um, we need to look at, while people are in prison, making sure they get better and not better. So there are jobs and education programs uh, that they have mental health treatment to the extent they need it, although I would not want a lot of, you know, it, it, someone who's mentally ill does not belong in a prison. I'm not saying let them out in the streets, but we got to find something better than a prison for some people like that. Um, I think we also need to make sure that when people come out of prison, uh, that they have a place to live, that they, they can get a job, that they, they can vote, uh, things of that nature. I think that we should make sure that they can get education loans, you name it, across the board. Uh, we, and basically, I'd like to have a system that makes more sense, that keeps communities safer, keeps law enforcement safer. We need to look at the, law, the, the role of law enforcement in our society. I mean, law enforcement was on board with the First Step Act. It wouldn't have happened without them. And the police reforms, I think that we want to see that same thing happen. Everybody come together. And there are some things that need to change. So under policing reform, um, you know, the way unions act, I mean, the whole idea of a union is, is fine. But at the same time, in, the, uh, in law enforcement, it seems that the union, uh, basically, whatever happens, they've already decided what the outcome will be. And I think that these unions should be allowed to do the regular bargaining for things like, um, war, you know, uh, um, compensation and for working conditions, but leave the outcomes if someone gets in trouble, a, a cop is brought up on a, um, charges something or other, that they have a neutral arbitrator and not someone from the union running it, basically. I think also that uh, we need to look at qualified immunity that basically keeps individuals whose constitutional rights are violated by um, government employees, including law enforcement and others, to keep them from being compensated and getting justice. We need to look at that. I don't want to see law enforcement, you know, tied up for every ticky-tack thing that happens, but at the same time, and one of the issues in these in the communities, I think the big issues we're seeing are the fact that there's been too many years of things being done to them and not done with them. And so we got to make sure that, they, that it's almost like a, well, it's got to be mutually beneficial, but it also needs to be a situation where the communities basically are a customer of law enforcement and vice versa. And I think most law enforcement want to do that. I think most people in the communities want that, but that, that isn't happening now. 
And so we need to see changes there as well. Um, we need to get rid of the collateral consequences that people face when they come out of prison. I'm not saying that people shouldn't have some restrictions on jobs or housing or occupations necessarily, but at the same time, when you just basically keep someone from getting a job, you keep them from you know, being able to live with their families or even get an apartment, or they can't get a loan and can't get money, you know, um, they, they, they can't uh, go to school and get better or get uh, more training. If we keep them from all those types of um, issues, what do we think is going to happen? It's just going to be a revolving door. So we need to be much more, we want public safety, but at the same time, we need to be much smarter about things. And I'm seeing that happening more and more, but it's a long way to go. And unfortunately, politicians still run on these tough on crime things, and it's just not right. It's not tough on crime. It should be smart on crime and soft on taxpayers. The reality is that, as you know, um, Dwayne, it, it all started in Texas, you know, Hangham High, Texas, where back in 2007, instead of building a new prison that would have cost a billion dollars or so, they ended up getting, <clears throat> they ended up, not building a new prison. Instead, they used different um, approaches. They had specialty courts. They used probation. Uh, they kept people who were drug addicts out of the system so they could get help instead of a, a criminal record. And what led to over the last 10 years was that uh, Texas showed, and now many states have showed, you can reduce crime rates and incarceration rates at the same time. And Texas has closed down, I think it's like um, at least five or six prisons. And then they've also gotten rid of uh, a bunch of um, a juvenile um, um, juvenile prisons as well because this works, not just locking people in a job, getting them better. And the reality is the amount of money we spend in prisons on people being incarcerated, you could you know, basically pay for someone's full college. So why not make a prison something like a, you know, a college where people get better instead of just becoming worse over time or becoming a better criminal. So we need to see those things happening more and more. That is happening. I think we've got a great chance, you know, once we get past this election, whoever the president is, uh, I think is going to be hopefully very focused on these issues because it really helps families, it helps communities, and it just keeps people safer. And that's what we want to see at the end of the day. That's it, my friends. Another one in the books. Big thank you to Mark Holden for taking the time to talk to us. And thank you to you for taking the time to download and listen. If you haven't had a chance to go do the five-star review, I'd appreciate it if you go ahead and do that now. And one other thing, if you haven't shared this podcast with a friend, I can tell you that word of mouth is one of the fastest ways a podcast grows. So if you haven't shared it yet, please take the time to do that this week. Until next time, this is Top Priority, where we talk about ideas for human flourishing.